Let's take our Bibles. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12 this morning. And I want us to look at what I believe to be um, the most amazingly surprising thing in the history of the world. I believe Mark believes that as well, for he puts this in a parable. It's the final parable in Mark, in fact, and it comes at an interesting location in the book, right before Christ is entering into his final days, on the heels of establishing his authority and fulfillment. This parable comes to us in chapter 12. It's one of those parables that when you read it, it makes sense, and at the same time, it's hard to comprehend. So I'm going to ask you to kind of do the two-handed thing this morning. You're going to get it in one sense, and then you're going to like, I don't get this in the other sense, okay? Here's what Mark would say is the most surprisingly remarkable thing in the history of the world. He, in fact, he says this in verse 11 of Mark 12. I'm just take you there right away, can I? I'm going to just show you how Mark describes the parable that he just He's going to write to us. It's really Christ speaking the parable, but Mark records it for us. He says in 12, 11 of, of his gospel there, Mark 12, he says that this was the Lord's doing, and it is, say with me, church, marvelous in our eyes. I want to take some time this morning to look at what it was that was marvelous in their eyes. Why was it marvelous in their eyes? This is how Mark in Christ's words, summarizes this story, this parable that, that we're going to find is just an amazingly remarkable thing. Here's, here's the meaning of the word marvelous. I want to make sure you get this, first of all, while we're kind of on this one little phrase. The word marvelous here means surprisingly uh, amazing. In other words, it's something contrary to what you thought was going to happen. It has the idea of, of uh, turning the tables. It has the idea of something that you thought it was going to be A, but it ended up being B. In other words, you were expecting this and you got that. Are you, are you tracking with me all right? You following this? This is the meaning of the word marvelous. It's not just like, oh, that's astounding. It's like, wow, we would never have thought that could happen from that. It's got kind of like a, a turning of the tables kind of, of meaning to it. Something that's surprisingly amazing. Not just that it's amazing in of itself, but like you never thought this could occur. So think with me for a minute about something in your life that maybe has proven to be that way for you. It won't be as great as what Mark lays out here, okay? Just go ahead and tell you that up front. But think with me. Is there something in your life that you think, wow, I never thought this would turn out to be that. I was expecting A and we got B. That'll help set your brain, your mind for what we're going to read. I, I know of one that I think Julie and I would, and I would share would be the fact that we're married. Um, we dated in college for a few months, broke up, and both pursued separate paths and even separate relationships to a certain degree. And then those both ended in heartbreak and they resulted in one good heartthrob right here. Are you with me? Like, I like that idea, right? Like, I would have never thought those two decisions would actually end up bringing us back together by God's grace. So I wasn't expecting that, but it turned out to be that way. It's like, man, hallelujah, right? So think about something in your life that, that just is amazingly 
surprising. Here's what Mark would say to us is the most amazingly surprising thing in the history of the world. It begins in verse one with Christ speaking to them in parables. Here's the parable he would tell that in Mark's account is marvelous. Christ says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Verse two says, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So it must have been time to, to harvest or to pick. It was expected fruit. And so the vineyard owner sent servants to, to get the fruit from the tenants. But the tenants, in verse three, it says, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed and so again, the vineyard owner, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And so he sent another and him they killed. And watch this next, last part of five. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Wow, isn't this incredible? The owner of the vineyard is expecting fruit. It's the season for fruit. And he's expecting this year after year after year. But what does he find that his tenants do? They kill his representatives, hoard the fruit for themselves, act as if the vineyard is theirs. And so the vineyard owner in verse six has one other option. It's his beloved son. And so finally he has sent him to them saying they will respect my son and they should have. And by the way, this is so textually uh, relevant because the landowner, the vineyard owner was thinking, they'll respect my son because he has my full authority. He's actually the, you know, the embodiment of who I am. He's, this is the full fulfillment. In other words, everything that we saw about Christ in chapter 11, remember that? He's the final authority, full fulfillment of everything God had promised. Like, you won't kill the son. Well, he sends his only beloved son but those tenants said to one another in verse seven, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they're still greedy and selfish. They're only thinking of what they can get for themselves. And so they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. So far, if I can just be really frank with you, I don't see very many marvelous things in this story. I mean, the setup was like, wow, this is the most marvelous thing in the history of the world. I'm finding a story of, of just murder, of ungratefulness, like, what's so remarkably surprising about this? Well, verse 9 begins to tell us. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Christ asked them this question. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He doesn't destroy the vineyard, by the way. But he does destroy the tenants. He takes the vineyard from their um, usage oversight, stewardship, and he gives it to others. And then verse 10 says that this is what's so remarkable, this story of, of apparent murder, deceit, selfishness, ingratitude, and yet on the part of the land owner, the vineyard owner, patience, long-suffering, this entire story 
He says in verse 10, have you not read the scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? So now he's making the parable, he's applying the parable, making the parable uh, applicable to something that's going on in their culture, to what's happening to them spiritually. The stone that the builders rejected, the, the only beloved son that, that the landowner, the vineyard owner sent, that you thought you rejected him, but actually that's the means by which now the vineyard will continue to grow. That's actually, he's become the, the, the cornerstone. He's become the thing on which we're actually building the building, so to speak. And he says here, this was the Lord's doing. Wow. God took what was apparently murderous, wicked, and evil, and impossible to fathom, something that you, you couldn't think in a million years would happen. God took that, and he turned it into something that was actually for our benefit. He took a, a stone that was rejected, and he made it the cornerstone. He took the vineyard from those who were misusing it and gave it to others, and now the vineyard's doing well the vineyard's being overseen properly. There's, there's fruit being born. You mean God has actually rescued the situation? This is, say with me, church, marvelous in our eyes. This is surprisingly amazing. We thought we were getting A, but we're getting B. We thought it would be this, but it's actually that. Wow, isn't God marvelous? That's the point of the parable. Now, let me just be frank with you here. This parable's not hard to figure out. Remember I told you there's two-handed kind of um, a balancing act this morning? You're going to say, I get the parable. It's not hard. And you do. In fact, you get it as quickly as the uh, elders and scribes and Sanhedrin and, and the Pharisees did. Look at verse 12. They were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Um, uh, right on, guys. You didn't miss that one. Like, bullseye, Okay. Didn't take you weeks and months to figure this out. You nailed it. He's definitely telling this parable against you. In other words, you are the initial rulers of the Jews and their place of worship, their spiritual formation. You're overseeing and stewarding God's vineyard, his people, but you've used them only for your profit. And throughout the ages, as God sent his prophets and his messengers to his people, you just abandon them, you would kill them, you would ignore them. And now you're doing that to his only beloved son whom he has sent with the same message. And yet this one that you're throwing out of the vineyard, the one you think doesn't have authority or isn't fulfillment, he's actually the one that when he dies, he'll become the very cornerstone of the building God is building. God will take what you think is a rejection and he'll turn it into our salvation. And this is marvelous. Yes, he was telling the parable against them, no doubt. And this is what happened, church. Historically and spiritually, theologically, this is what happened. Let me give you a few details about the text just to kind of make sure that even though we get it, that you get all of it if you can. Here, of course, the tenants, I would say, are not the Jewish people, but they are the Jewish leaders. And I would say most specifically, they're going to be the Sanhedrin, those who were responsible to oversee temple worship, Jewish life. You can mix in there the scribes, the elders of the Pharisees. 
You could mix all that in there, but I think most specifically, he's talking about the Sanhedrin here. And when he took the vineyard from them, because they were not producing fruit, they weren't utilizing it to God's glory for the impact among the nations. It was simply a, a self-profiteering enterprise. And by the way, remember the temple story? He cleared it. That's what that was. It was a self-profiting enterprise. Remember the fig tree? It did not bear fruit, and so he cursed it. Again, God is looking for fruit. So here he is now saying in parabolic fashion to the rulers of the Jewish people, you didn't manage and oversee and steward my people well, my vineyard. They weren't a light to the nations like I instructed. There wasn't fruit being born from them. So I'm done with you overseeing this. I'm gonna give it to others. And who are the others there? I think most specifically, it'd be the disciples. We learn in Ephesians that Paul said the disciples are the uh, and the prophets, of course, are the foundation of the church. And so what you see here generally is the beginning of the public, uh, the blatant expansion of God's family from just being an, an, a Jewish, a primarily Jewish situation to now it's blatantly Jews and Gentiles. Just come on in. We want to see fruit born. And I think that's probably what the word fruit refers to. It's more people who are trusting in Christ, hearing his name, the, the making of disciples from both Jew and Gentile nations. That wasn't happening. Israel had turned very self-centered, self-focused. They had not been a light to the nations as they were instructed, even back when Abraham was initially called. And here God saying, I will now take the vineyard, my people, from the oversight of these leaders who are selfish and greedy and, and uh, patting their pockets on your backs. And I will turn it over to these disciples who have followed me and carrying their cross, and they will now become the foundation for, the, for God's people, which will include both Jew and Gentile, and there will be fruit. So there's the parable. Before we analyze even further more about how this is marvelous, I want us to just make a few observations about this parable. Now that we understand kind of what it means and some of the details around it. First of all, here's three of them. I'll just say them pretty quickly. God is on a relentless pursuit of fruit from his vineyard. Do you see that in this story? How he goes back multiple times. He sends servants multiple times. Hey, it's a season for fruit. Come on, let's, let's bring the fruit and there's no fruit, but God, does God give up? Does he say, I'm done? No, he's continually, continuing to pursue fruit from his vineyard. So I think one thing we have to understand is God is on a relentless pursuit of fruit from his vineyard. If I'm right, that fruit there is symbolic for people trusting Christ, for his kingdom coming to places that have not heard of him yet, for people who haven't believed to believe in him. If, if that's kind of what's going on here, that God expects fruit in that fashion, we can say this, that God is on a relentless pursuit of people. Isn't that beautiful? That God wants people to believe in his name, and so he's making his glory known, and he's using his people to do that. This is one of the things that, that I think they were mismanaging. Israel was not a light to the nations. They weren't a, a, I use this phrase appropriately, a kind of a force to be reckoned with. They weren't making an impact. Instead, they were just very self-focused, only on themselves. We saw that true, especially in the Kings and the Chronicles. 
So God is on a relentless pursuit of fruit from his vineyard. Now let's just think about that in our current time and make a very plain application here, okay? This means that God is concerned, yes, about First Family Church, making sure that you know his name and that you have trusted him and believed him, but he's also pursuing those who have yet to hear his name, who don't know him. Are you with me? In other words, the idea of making disciples of all nations is clearly God's agenda, and he wants us on that agenda. One of the ways I think that we can continue to have God's perspective about this is by, by seeing the, the, the necessity um, of partners in other places of the world who are reaping fruit for God's name. Let me give you two of them that I was thinking about this week in light of something I want to share with you. So Eric and Anissa Haney, they serve in a Nordic country. And they've been there for several years. Many of you know them. They've been here before. A beautiful couple. And they're serving there in an area that's, there's not a lot of fruit. But they're living there instead of here so that there can be more fruit. And we could go through all of our partners, many of them living in other places, doing things so that there is more fruit in God's vineyard. Does that make sense? So when we think about how we can make a difference with them, one of the ways we do that is through giving, by visiting them, by encouraging them, you know, holding the rope on this side while they're on the front lines or secondary lines on that side. This is why mission work matters to the church and why you find it first family in our DNA is an is an, uh, a very deep emphasis on mission work. In other words, work outside of these walls. It doesn't mean this work here doesn't matter. Would you nod your head like this? Like, we agree. This does matter. People in Ankeny are lost. People in this room, lost perhaps. Never heard of Christ or maybe never heard the gospel clearly. Maybe they're just kind of curious but never really trusted and followed. So we don't ever underestimate what can happen locally, but neither do we close our minds off to what's happening globally. And a church must have a missions-minded kind of global perspective about God's work and his desire to see fruit. And so we're engaged in that. One of the organizations that we partner with on a regular basis and have since we began is the International Mission Board. In fact, that's who the Haney's are with. And every year around December, usually the first week, they offer churches that are partners with them to, to give special offering called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. In fact, you'll see an envelope about that in the chair in front of you. Now, you may say, that's a weird name for an offering, a Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. What does that mean? Lottie Moon was a missionary in China in the 1800s, served there 30-plus years, and faithfully, in horrendous conditions, brought God's name to people who had never heard it. She was serving faithfully. She was reaping fruit in God's vineyard, doing what matters to God? Making disciples, proclaiming his name, sharing the story. And so the, today, just have a chance for us as a church. If you want to do this, just take the envelope home with you. Talk to your spouse. Think about it. Pray about it. And if this month you want to give a special offering to help the work of the IMB, this is one way we can contribute and participate in God's vineyard because reaping fruit matters. And so your dollars here would go to specifically help people like the Haney's. In fact, IMB is partnering with about 3,000 plus missionaries all across the globe. And we're part of that just by faithfully giving. And so I just want to give you the opportunity this month just to participate in their 
Christmas offering in honor of Lottie Moon. You take the envelope home, just bring it back sometime in this month. You can drop off in one of our giving boxes. This is above and beyond what we normally give. And neither is this a church-wide special offering. We committed to you no church-wide special offerings this year. This is just an opportunity to give to IMB in, in honor of Lottie Moon and in light of what we know is true about God our Father, that he's on a relentless pursuit of fruit, isn't he? And so how can we continue to have his mindset? This is one of the ways. I'd encourage you, even if you choose not to give, I would encourage you to download the IMB Pray app. You can find it on the Android store, the Apple store. Uh, each day there are prayer reminders in there for what God's doing globally. As you leave, you can pick up a seven-day prayer guide that'll walk you through this week as we think about different missionaries with the IMB. So there's a hard copy out there. You can pick one up on the app. Let's be a digital copy. All it's gonna do is help you think about those who aren't here but over there, wherever there may be, right? Who are doing the work in God's vineyard of, of reaping fruit and what we're doing to help with that and how we're reaping fruit here. In other words, this is the mindset that every church must have that we're serving the agenda of a God who's relentlessly pursuing fruit. So we must at all costs really avoid kind of a closed-centered mindset. Us for and no more. You know, I don't like you. Don't come in here. You're not our kind. Like all that's just away with that. Amen, church? But man, an open-armed posture to those who don't know Christ and in God's name, we implore people, be reconciled to God because God is on a relentless pursuit of fruit from his vineyard. That kind of brings me to the second um, observation that we must be on God's agenda. That is God's agenda, by the way. The making of disciples among every nation. And so leaders must be on God's agenda, not our own. Amen, church. We must be on God's agenda. And I know sometimes you get tired of hearing it. You always think, man, it's, just, it's like a broken record around here sometime, right? But we don't, we don't make the rules. Your elders and as your pastor, we don't write the mission statement. God gave it to us. It's his mission, amen? We're his church. And so as one of your leaders, it's my responsibility to bring to you on a regular basis God's passion for the nations and his relentless pursuit of fruit. And what is the part that we're playing in that? We all have different roles, different gifts, admittedly. Yes, that's true, different preferences. But they must be the ladder that leans against the right wall. And the right wall is that God is calling together a people for his own name from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. Is your ladder leaning against that wall? It's church leaders' responsibility to make sure it is, to help you with that. It's one of the reasons we promote mission trips. In fact, when you leave today, there'll be a, a flyer outside the door. It'll have 2020 mission trips on it. I'd encourage you to think about which one you're gonna go on. Maybe with your kids, as a family, maybe individually. There's several options. Some are very accessible. Some are harder. It's by design that way, and it's not a perfect list. We're still thinking about how we can you know, develop trips that reach a broader spectrum. But for this year, these are the ones that 2020 is looking like. Go on one of those trips. It will cost you. It'll take your time. There's a sacrificial nature to it. Yes, of course. But, but when you go on a short-term trip, you get outside of your own comfort zone and you begin to see what God is doing across the globe in bringing fruit from his vineyard. 
It will change your perspective about the world. It'll change the way you think about our church and ministry here. And it'll be a good change, by the way. And things begin to happen internally as we get on his agenda, not our own. This is what God was expecting from these leaders in this parable, wasn't he? He was expecting them to be on his agenda, not theirs. And his agenda was relentlessly pursuing fruit. But I think the most stunning observation and the one that I cannot grasp, even though I see it in front of me, and you'll be in the same boat. You'll see it, you're like, I get this. I know what the parable means, it's not hard. And yet you'll say, I don't get this. Okay, you ready for this? Here's the most stunning observation. That God planned to use their plotting for his purposes. Now, just prepare yourself because I'm probably gonna be tongue-tied for a bit and you may be brain-tied for a bit. We're all gonna kind of find ourselves mind-boggled and, and uh, amazingly stunned at the sovereignty of God. But this is what the scriptures would teach us. That this horrific parable that includes murders and beatings, selfishness and ingratitude, and incredible compassion and long-suffering from the vineyard owner, it's actually a depiction of, of how Israel treated the prophets and Jesus. And then God's reaction to their leaders and then his compassion in taking the one that they rejected ultimately, his son, and then using their murder of him to actually be the, the basis for our salvation. Like, who thinks that way, first of all? Who does that? Now, I tell you that this is planned. This is God's plan. It's because that what's quoted in verses 10 and 11, this is not the first time this was said. Make sure your brains are on you know, full level here. Just follow me. This is not the first time this is said. So here's what we know is not happening. Christ isn't watching this occur. And like, man, they're actually going to get me in the end. And they're going to string me up and kill me. Like, okay, Father, we got to get to a plan B in a hurry because I've only got a few days left. And then God says, okay, I got an idea. We'll take this murder of my son and we'll twist it and, and, and convert it to where it's actually going to be the... The, the way that folks are saved. That's what I'll do. And then God kind of kicks into plan B. That's not what's happening here. Now, if God was like quick on his feet in that way, we'd be glad about that, wouldn't we? You'd be like, hey, that's a pretty good God. But it's way bigger than that. Way grander than that. And way, um, way more stunning than that. Here's what the text says. These are quotes from both Psalms, which is David's time, hundreds of years before this occurred, and Isaiah again, Hundreds of years. David is the one who talked about the stone being rejected, becoming the cornerstone, and how this was marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 5 is where we hear about the vineyard being Israel, but God taking that and then giving it to someone else so that fruit would be born. All that's predicted hundreds of years prior to this occurring. So when Christ says, what's happening here? When you're gonna arrest me, you're going to torture me. You're going to kill me. You're going to think you're throwing me out of the vineyard. What's actually happening is God is using that as the ultimate, final, fulfilling sacrifice of everything he's promised. And he's going to meet man's need for salvation in that one time of rejection. What's happening has been planned by God for the ages. That's hard to actually comprehend and even harder to express. Because none of us think that way. We're expecting A. 
You got rid of the, of the heir. You killed him. It's over. Let's have the funeral. But no, we got B. There's a resurrection and salvation. And what's so beautiful is Jesus here, he says this was the Lord's doing. Church, read this. Let this blanket you. Let this weigh on you. It was God's plan all along to bring forth his son in the fullness of time and have him at the hands of the leaders of his people be arrested, tortured, and crucified and killed so that he could then raise him on the third day and show his satisfaction with the price Christ paid. The price that would be once and for all atoning for the sins of all who believe. This was God's plan. That's why it's marvelous in our eyes that God would from the beginning of time, from the foundation of the world, put in motion the redemptive story. It's God's doing. And so because it's so remarkably amazing, it's so surprisingly turning of the tables because this is not how we think. It's so counterintuitive. This is not what we would expect. We thought A, we got B. We thought this, we got that. It is marvelous in our eyes. And do you feel the weight of this verse, the beauty, the stunning nature of this? Wow. This really is just the gospel spelled out for us, isn't it? In this parable that you get and yet you don't get, that you love and yet you can't comprehend, that you're thankful for but you don't know how it happened. This is the gospel. And this is what we celebrate week in and week out. That God, who is holy, he knew we weren't. And so he sent his son to live the life we couldn't live, but he demanded a perfect holy life. Obedience to the law, fulfillment of everything he said. So we're all toast on that. But Jesus wasn't. He fulfilled perfectly everything that God demanded. And then he walked into the temple, presented himself in full authority, final fulfillment, as the perfect sacrifice he gave his life then on the cross as the sacrifice, totally filling up everything that God demanded as an atonement for sin. And the writer of Hebrews now says that because Christ has now sat down, that that final atoning sacrifice is good eternally. It's forever sufficient. And so now, 2,000 years later, we look back and we say it's marvelous that whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. That's marvelous. When what it looked like was the murderous crucifixion of someone. Like the end of a, of a you know, as the world would say, well, he was a good man but didn't end too well, right? No, no, no. That's the, the horizontal, short-term perspective. It had always been God's plan to provide redemption for his people through this means. And that may, that's hard to comprehend and difficult to grasp, but it's true, and so we say it's marvelous. It's amazingly surprising. It's the turn of the tables. Yeah, that's your salvation. It was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes.
I don't know what to tell you to do with this other than rejoice in it. There's no to-do list to take from this. Now, I want you to be about fruit reaping, okay? I want our church to be about that, yes. I want us to be on God's agenda, but the truth is something of this nature, you don't walk out with a list in your hands and, okay, God, these eight things I'm gonna check off. You just kind of, uh, you're kind of blown back. Your hair is just, right? And you're just looking at, wow, this is incredibly marvelous. And that becomes the fuel for every bit of the sacrifice that's necessary in following Jesus. So before I kind of wrap this up for you in one single sentence, let me see if you have any questions. I'm not sure if anyone came in or not with questions, but let's see if there's any at all. Jason, do you have any questions? A long one. Is the harvest time in the parable one harvest time with many servants coming to receive the harvest for the owner? Or many harvest times over many years with servants being sent each year? What besides the metaphor of Israel's history in the text would imply multiple years of harvest time? So let's take the first question. Is the harvest time in the parable one harvest time with many servants? Or is it... um, Many years with servants being sent each year. I think it's the harvest that, I'm not sure how to answer the question, first of all. I'm not sure how to answer it, except I think the story speaks of Israel's history and then rejecting the prophets continuously. So it may be that, I'm gonna just kind of land the plane here on this question best I can. I could be wrong about this. My sense is it's speaking of the harvest of Christ's coming. And their continual rejection of the revelation God would give through his prophets that Christ the Messiah was on the way. And so they kept rejecting his message. And so I think the sense is we're rejecting the message of God that would lead to the full understanding of who Christ is when he comes. So that would probably speak maybe to a single kind of harvest moment if you're gonna call it that. Does that make sense? That's probably where I would land because all the Old Testament was leading up to the Fulfillment of Christ and the appearance of Christ. That was his coming. So I tend to think this is what the metaphor is leaning towards. You've had all this time, all these messengers, to see who's actually coming, and now you're rejecting him when he's here. This is the harvest moment. I think we don't want to press things too hard, though, because sometimes if you make something walk on all fours, it turns into a weird creature. You've heard that before, right? So let's be careful here. I think in this parable there, each of these things do represent things, and in some parables you don't have that, so we have a little more insight here much like the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. But I would say that perhaps you could say that perhaps both could be true. Maybe there's some symbolic meaning in both. But if I had to land on one, I would say that the harvest time seems to be the moment of Christ appearing and seeing him as the Messiah. And because you're now rejecting him who is with you personally, we're taking the vineyard away. We're giving it to the disciples. That's how I would see that in this moment. It's a great question. The second question is, besides the metaphor of Israel's history in the text, what would imply that multiple years of harvest times? Um, I don't know. That so I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe uh, there aren't multiple harvest times mentioned. So I would just say, I don't know on that one. Is that okay to say to you? Good. Okay. Is there another one, Jason? Okay. Man, the first one in a while is with doozy. I appreciate that. Yeah. Kind of lay me flat here. I'm already kind of blown back today a little bit, right? Good question. So here's how I'd say to you as a good summary of of this parable. Kind of a a way to kind of take this parable that you know 
And yet you're like, wow, I don't really get that. Here's how I would sum it up. Here's a handle on which you can carry this around. It's always been God's loving purpose to turn the tables of a crucifixion so that it is actually the means of our marvelous salvation. That's really what the parable's teaching, isn't it? Because this has been prophesied and promised. And so what it looks like, oh my, this is not what we're expecting. Oh, but don't, don't, don't fret. God's in control of this. This is his doing. And it's marvelous. You're expecting this to be the end? No, it's just the beginning. He will re-resurrect it. He will reign. This is marvelous to us. What looks like a rejection and a crucifixion is actually our salvation. Only God could do that. So will you read this with me together, church? It has always been God's loving purpose to turn the tables of a crucifixion so that it is actually the means of our marvelous salvation. And again, when you, when you see this, don't, don't try to you know, jot down your to-do list real quickly and put little check boxes so that you're a better person. Man, let's just bask in the beautiful glory of God's marvelous um, deeds. Let's just swim in that ocean. Let's be overwhelmed by the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's let his beauty just stun us. That's where we should reside right now. We should stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love us. Sinners, undone, unclean. Those are the words of a song written by a man back in the early 1900s. In fact, many of you probably know that song. It's called, How Marvelous, How Wonderful Is My Savior's Love for Me? He used the word marvelous. In fact, the guy that wrote that song's name was Charles Gabriel. Do you know he was born and raised in Iowa? He wrote about seven to 8,000 hymns and songs. His most well-known, known, his most well-known though, is that one right there. I stand amazed. Don't you stand amazed this morning? Aren't you just stunned that Christ and God could turn the tables of a crucifixion so that it's your marvelous salvation? Amen, church. We're gonna sing that as we close today. I wanna invite you to sing that with new vigor, a new passion in light of the parable of Mark 12. Join Peter and Paul in how they approached it. Here's some verses that would show us how they thought about it as well. Verses that would give us further insight into this, inc- this uh, incredible kind of um, two-handed thing we're trying to hold today. Here's what Peter said about this very scenario. We'll close with these verses. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. I mean, that's the gospel of Mark, isn't it? Up to about verse 12, uh, chapter 12, chapter 13, that's it. Just doing miracles attested to by God. He says, you yourselves know this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He takes both of them and puts them together and he sees no conflict in them, does he? It's always been God's loving purpose for his son to be the atoning sacrifice and here's the means by which he did it, the hands of lawless men who killed him. This is God's doing. That's a marvelous thing, isn't it? 
So no wonder Paul would then write later how unsearchable are God's judgments. He says his riches are deep, his wisdom and knowledge. And he says his ways, they're past finding out. That's what the word inscrutable means. means you can't even find out what they mean. You can see the effect of them, you can see the result, and you can, you can rest in them, you can love them, you can enjoy them. You're thankful for them, but, but to figure out how God does some things, it's beyond us. And to that we say hallelujah. For only God could take a crucifixion and a rejection and turn it to your marvelous salvation. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.